Ata Maria, welcome to First Up, it is Rahina, that's Monday, the 27th of June, call Nathan Rarade a hope. Coming up we will head to the US where some states have already made abortions illegal after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v Wade. Back home we are joined by a GP working long hours to relieve pressure on our inundated emergency departments. And we head to Wairoa as it prepares for Health NZ and the Māori Health Authority taking over on Friday when DHBs become a thing of the past. If you can't afford to go and see a doctor, and although we, we pay a low fee for access, $10 is still a, a lot of money. And then you've got your $5 script on top of that, so making ends meet is a huge problem. Welcome back to First Up after your Matariki weekend. I hope it was successful for you and you managed to get some relaxation in there. I'm Nathan Rarere and we start this morning in the USA where the impact of that Supreme Court's uh, decision to overturn Roe v Wade is being felt across the country, also around the world too. Interesting statements happening from happening for many politicians, which I'm sure we'll talk about this week. But joining me from New York is our correspondent, Anna Burns-Francis. Morena, Anna. Good morning, Nathan. How are you? I'm very good. Can you tell us, um, I did see some pictures of protests. Tell us what is happening with protest um, gatherings and, and you know what have, what have they been like and what have you seen across the weekend? Yeah, look, it's been nearly constant across, well, New York City obviously is, is a very big city with a lot of boroughs, so there have been protests organised right across the uh, city from really as soon as that announcement was made. Uh, where it was Friday in the morning here in America. It was Saturday uh, for you in New Zealand when that finally came through. The result we've all been waiting for and probably dreaded really after seeing that opinion draft leaked uh, a few weeks ago, really hinting that this was what was going to happen. I think it was still a state of shock and certainly a lot of the protests and the speakers they've had really can't believe that this is the state of events in America in 2022. The problem is you can rally, and there are more rallies planned uh, starting again tomorrow. Of course, it's Pride weekend here in America, so there's a slight pause uh, for today at least. But starting again tomorrow, the real question will be what can people do and what will people be able to do from this point forward? How many of the states have introduced bans uh, on abortion in the hour since the decision? Yeah, so we had 13 states already with trigger laws, but depending on how that exactly been written, some of them might have been signed into law now, but they still had like a 10-day stand-down period where a state could still, a clinic rather, could still provide health care to women for, say, a week or so, even after the law was signed. So eight states have already decided that under their trigger laws, abortions cannot be offered at all. So that's around 31 million women who have immediately had their healthcare access cut. There are a number of other states where trigger laws have already been signed, uh, around six or seven, I think, where they will, in the coming days and weeks, no longer be able to provide services. And then there's another 13 states where we're expecting the law to change pretty soon. Oh, okay. Anna, I, th- I think if you can still hear me, I just want so, to know. So all up, 20 seconds be being able to provide. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, no, we just we just lost you there for a second. Um, So so there were trigger trigger bans that were already, um, you know, set off there with these states. What is the plan B for opponents of this decision? Can they do anything? Well, the big question really is what can they do when it comes to midterms? Because 
because these were actually, this has been a long playbook from the right and from the Republicans. This really started with the flipping of state houses, you know, almost a decade ago. A lot of these trigger laws were actually even signed into law, you know, as far back as 2018, 2019. So this is going to have to be a long road for Democrats uh, and for liberals to try and turn the legislation around in America. There's possibly some maneuverability with President Biden signing an executive order or trying to get some reform through health care acts for women to at least provide access uh, to, to abortion drugs or to services interstate. But really, it's going to come down to how well the Democrats can politicize this over the next five months leading up to elections. And it just there's someone who I keep reading about and he pops up all the time here, particularly after this. This is Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, who is now inviting new legal challenges. Um, he is, is. Is he really at the forefront of this? Does he appear to be the leader that's chipping away at, at these laws? I think it's fair to say that what you have on that bench now is a number of textual originalists. They believe literally in the only interpretation of the Constitution that could have been made 235 years ago, which, by the way, not only doesn't include the word abortion or woman, it also doesn't include internet or space travel. So, you know, really a, a quite literal interpretation of the Constitution, not as a living document, probably doesn't serve you very well in 2022, but that's the bench we have. Clarence Thomas is an extreme originalist in that, yes, he believes in revisiting now any other um, decision that has been issued by the Supreme Court that in any way relied on Roe v. Wade as existing precedent. So that includes gay marriage. That includes gay relationships. It includes access to contraception. But make no mistake, Clarence Thomas, and I have a lot of thoughts on someone like Clarence Thomas, is also supported by a number of other justices on the bench who share, even broadly, his views on how the Constitution should be interpreted. Mm. Anna, thank you very much for your time this morning. This year's uh, Out of the United States was doing uh, great work for us. That's uh, Anna Burns Francis. It's 11 past five if you're listening live to First Up here in RNZ National. Let's go to Thailand now where the country has this year uh, seen a striking turnaround in its laws on illegal drugs. Remember, they were very, very harsh laws there. But earlier this month, the government completely legalised cultivating and consuming cannabis, reversing a hardline approach of long-term prison sentences and even the death penalty for drug offences. The policy has sparked off a boom in marijuana-related businesses and who, uh, who are hoping to cash in on a new customer base. The BBC's Southeast Asia correspondent Jonathan Head reports on what's, on what's behind this dramatic change. The cannabis craze is sweeping Thailand. See how beautiful it is? This is the country's health minister, the architect of what's now one of the most liberal marijuana regimes anywhere in the world. Being cheered by enthusiastic locals who hope that this green gold will bring them new wealth. It is an astonishing turnaround for a country that still has some of the toughest punishments for drug use. We have already destigmatized these products from being uh, narcotic. People, when they have access to this cannabis industry, they will not go to the dark side. They will only focus on how to make a better living. Already, cannabis is being offered in a mind-blowing variety of forms. The official view is that this should all be for medical or therapeutic purposes. That's what the government is promoting to tourists. 
They want people coming to Thailand to get well, not high. In practice, though, the new law makes pretty much anything from the marijuana plant, however potent, legal. I am happy, really happy. Now villagers like us can grow it legally. We no longer have to hide. Even what's perhaps Thailand's most famous product, its cooking, has been caught up in the craze. It's actually an old tradition here of putting marijuana into quite a few recipes, including the dishes in front of me here, which the government would like to tap into as it pursues its goal of turning Thailand into a marijuana hub. But can it do that without an explosion in recreational use, something the government doesn't want to happen? Any doubt that it can. So what happens in here, Nan? We're mostly focusing on CBD flower strain, so... We're Nan Chitchop is a marijuana enthusiast. Super exciting. Today is such a big win, I think, for, yeah. you know, all stoners in Thailand. <laughs> so is it a She's also the daughter of a powerful local politician who's backing cannabis cultivation in this poor rural region of Thailand. Nan plans to help local farmers with her know-how. She's not convinced that the government's focus on medical use is realistic. We all know from studying, like, you know, other markets that recreational is where the money's at. So I think this is a good step towards that if we're really um, thinking of this as an actual economic crop. Even though the government says it's strictly for medical purposes, it's not for recreational. I hope that they see the potential, like, economics of it, and hopefully that will aid with the legalization of, like, recreational use. This really feels like a new age for Thailand. Just a month ago, possessing this much marijuana might have got you 15 years in jail. Today, anyone can cash in on the weed bonanza and with just a few restrictions, enjoy consuming it too. Quarter past five, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radade. Keen for your feedback. Gosh, it was a bit of, bit of a, oh, what are, what are we supposed to do with even uh, heading into Matariki weekend before we got there? First first go at it for everybody. Did you, what did you do? Did you do anything? Even if you just went, actually, I just enjoyed some time off. That's an answer. 2101, or you can do it the old-fashioned way. Email us first up at rnz.co.nz, and we always love to hear from you. Well, uh, let's go to Afghanistan now, where survivors of last week's earthquake struggle to, uh, gosh, to find food and shelter, and now authorities fear outbreaks of disease such as cholera. Earlier, I talked with our correspondent in neighbouring Pakistan, Kasvar Klazra, uh, and asked him about the latest death toll. Well, uh, there are conflicting reports, uh, but the authentic report suggested that uh, Around 1,000 to 1,200 people have died in, uh, in you know, Afghanistan, and uh, hundreds have been have gone missing. But regarding your question, there is no authentic report, and uh, the uh, uh, you know the official media uh, is reporting, uh, quoting their spokesperson of uh, the government of Afghanistan, that maybe 1,200 people have died, and still hundreds are, have gone missing uh, following the killing earthquake. Oh, that's horrible, horrible. So how remote is this affected region where it's happened? Well, exactly as, as we all know that uh, Afghanistan is a very poor country and people, most of the people there live in the countryside 
they made you know the houses made of mud and other things so uh, technically uh, the modern buildings can sustain uh, the, the sixth magnitude you know the earthquake but uh, when we talk about the homes made of, of mud and that too in a mountain area so such type of uh, you know earthquake proved killing this is what we have seen in afghanistan and uh, that is actually the point uh behind scores of that over there and uh, since uh, the mountainous uh, uh, you know the parts of Afghanistan which border Pakistan Afghanistan border uh, have been hit hard so the death uh, you know uh, the death toll may be uh, rise on the rise as well because still i am getting reports from Afghanistan still uh, the rescue teams could not reach to some of the distant areas as well this is what uh, is actually horrible and the inexperience of Afghanistan government is trying uh, hard to cope with the situation but i think they are not experienced they are not forceful to cope with such a killing outcake so uh, afghanistan trying their best to deal with it and like you say they they just aren't resourced so what sort of help are they getting from pakistan and india well pakistan and india being being you know the neighboring country they have tried their a lot to provide assistance to uh, to afghanistan pakistan was the first country with dispatched trucks loads of medicines camps and uh, and other you know the eatables as well and pakistan and same was the case with india they dispatched eatables food and some uh, you know the ornaments for uh, uh the hospitals as well but we just heard that only two countries have dispatched uh, the help and as you know we all know that uh, the world has not acknowledged uh, the government there in afghanistan government of afghanistan uh, the government of taliban so that is perhaps the reason behind uh, uh, the world communities slugging slugging bad taking bad and they have not come forward to help uh, uh, the afghanistan that is the core point because you know the government is not recognized over there and soon after the us withdrawal we have seen that a number of international ngos their representatives have to fled uh, afghanistan following us withdrawal so that is perhaps the reason that the world community has not uh, uh, you know they responded to the calls made by the taliban government over there so this is what that has become that has made the things very horrible for the to the fresh produce markets we go load out the wagon we're off joining me now full of beans or apples um, sprouts various other things it's the minister of fruit and veggies Kula uh, Glenn Forsyth how are you um Damn good, Nathan. How are you, my friend? I'm really good. Um, rhubarb is something we, we wanted to get into, and I know you've been looking at it over the weekend. Um, where, where have you been looking at it, and who's grown it? Yeah, rhubarb. This fruit of the vegetable clan originated in northern Tibet and was first marketed in England in the 16th century, although not coming into vogue as a food until much later. It is a wholesome food with its uniquely tart flavour, but discourage the children from nibbling on the leaves because they are toxic. The red of the stalk, though, the sweeter the flavour. I work with the lovely Jane Gock, but her dad, Joe, arrived in the 40s, married Faye, and they grew vegetables ever since in Mangere. Faye sadly passed in 2018, but you may remember a beautiful documentary about the couple when they 
reached their 60th wedding anniversary, and the story too where their kuma rootstock saved New Zealand's Northland kuma industry from disease, which they gifted to our growers through the DSIR in the 60s. But back to their rhubarb, however, Joe is 94, he still potters around the crops, and he drives the tractors. Their sales pick up when rhubarb is on, you know, is on cooking shows, but demand in the winter is also good. Jane says just a little bit of weeding and fertilising required, and it's away laughing. She remembers back in the day everyone having a rhubarb and a silver plant in the garden. Her favourite ways of eating is stewed in water and a, and a bit of sugar, then eat with a dollop of cream or yoghurt, and especially she loves them in a rhubarb pie or crumble. So... Yeah, get try some rhubarb this Ooh, week. That, that's brave, the rhubarb with the yogurt. Uh, Two one oh one listeners, how do you deal with the rhubarb? What do you, you go with an ice cream? You go with a bit of a with the rhubarb. What is the number one way that you go with your rhubarb? Um, let's talk. Uh, keep it about uh, root vegetables as well. You just mentioned the kumara, kumara and pumpkin. They're big in store at the moment, and just in time for a lot of matariki hangies. Oh, absolutely. Just about the only green that didn't jump up in price today from last Thursday market was leaked. So it's all about staples to kick off with today. And for those that like our little red yam, yes, the hoo-hoo grub look like they're Nathan. They are underway. However, staples such as pumpkin are still in good supply and potatoes. We've been knocking ourselves out with layered potato dishes lately. Not sure of the correct pronunciation, but is that called the the Dow, the Dow Founoise potatoes, the, the, the French classic? You heard of that? Okay. I'll go with that. That sounded very free. I, I, gee, I felt like I was in Marseille uh, when you said that. I, I thought I was riding a bicycle with a string of onions around my neck. Yeah, it sounded very French. Oh, I probably said it horribly, but that's, that's the French classic with layers upon layers of, of finely sliced potatoes, cream, butter, and cheese with a hint of fresh thyme. Don't use waxy varieties, though, as they slip apart all over the place. Now, then we have the butternut and kuma in good supply. Kuma can be enjoyed in warm winter salads, healthy oven cooked chips, creamy soups, and even baking. And finishing on mushrooms, which are incredibly versatile, add those to stir fries, phyllo tarts, stuff them with herbs and breadcrumbs and bake them, or simply slice raw into salads. You can even replace your burger patty with the large flat brown or portobello varieties. Yes, yeah, so you can try that in, in a burger. Okay. Uh, let's, um, you know what, I was, I was in the supermarket yesterday and I thought, oh, it is too. It was some, some navel oranges. Are they from Australia? Oh, mate, you're good spine. You're not, not forgetting the saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Some good choices there are ambrosia, royal gala and envy. Pack and pears, green fish, kiwi fruit, and lemons complete your best buys to kick the week off with. Old season persimmons are coming to their end as our export season winds up. Already seen new season avocados at low prices, so no cigar this year for New Zealand avocado growers on that high-priced early new season fruit. Now, we are not big fans of early fruit in our household through July. Anyhow, we prefer to have a break from the Hass avocado and then happily start on them again in spring when they've just, you know, when they've got past their watery stage. But as you've just mentioned, what aren't watery, though, and finally on our shores are Australian naval oranges. Yes, our New Zealand navels have improved over the last three decades, but there's just something about the South Australian naval orange that is purely satisfying. If you see some in a store near you this week, do try them. We would love to hear your experience. Beautiful. Glenn, thank you very much for your You're time, welcome. sir. Yes, have a look for them. The Aussie naval oranges, the ones with a little belly button on the bottom. Yeah. Sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life, we've all agreed to call the 27th of June. Lots of happenings on this day. In 1844, Mormon founder Joseph Smith and his brother were killed by a mob uh, when they were being held in jail. He and his brother had been charged with treason and apparently he was running for president. 
at the time as, as an independent candidate and some of his ideas, they said, those are treasonous. So they threw him in jail and then they all showed up and threw him out a window. Uh, in 1871, the yen was adopted as Japan's official monetary unit on the state. Uh, the government suspended the exchange of clan notes, which was uh, money issued by feudal lords, and that had been circulated since the 16th century. The value of the yen coming up in our exciting money report uh, after business news. Uh, on this day in 1977, Djibouti gained its independence from France, and as we switch to birthdays, the song Africa by Toto, uh, 40 years old uh, today as far as New Zealand's concerned. It's when it was released here. Um, Toby Maguire, one of the Spider-Men, is 47 years old today. Chloe Kardashian is 38 today, 2101, to tell me you don't care about the Kardashians. Uh, John Eels is 52 today. Phil Kearns, 55, but the most successful songwriter of all time. Mildred J. Hill was born on this day in 1859. Yes, the American school teacher who composed Happy Birthday to You in 1893. It was originally called Good Morning to All, and she'd welcome the kids into the class with it. And her sister, Patty, said, hey, about these words for birthdays. And it is the most sung song in the world. And that is the day of our life, the 27th of June. Past five here on First Up uh, with Nathan Rada here in RNZ National. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team, he's uh, back in the rotation, starting on the mound, as they say in baseball. It's Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora, man. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Okay, what's um, what's this? Uh, where are all the company failures and liquidations? What's this about? Yeah, I, this is probably a question I've been having for the past few weeks, past couple of months, and it all seems back to what we saw during the pandemic, was the number of company failures actually plummeted, uh, much to everyone's surprise, but then everyone quickly realised that all that government stimulus, the wage subsidies mm. scheme, various grants, you also had interest rates slashed. It was quite a supportive environment given relative to the other uh, challenges that companies were facing and actually saw much fewer companies actually going broke. Mm. But there was a thinking amongst some experts in the sector that, well, once most of those rolled off, that's when we'd probably start to see an uptick. But speaking to an expert um, recently, they told me that we're still 50% pre, uh, below pre-pandemic levels. And they're and they've started to realise why, and one of them, one of the main reasons is the accommodative approach that's been taken by IRD, because they account for more than half of all the reasons why companies get put into liquidation. Just They're the ones tax. that say, actually, you haven't been paying your tax, we're going to go to the court and apply for you to be put into liquidation to try and get our money back. Mm. But IRD has been very um, supportive of companies over the past couple of years. That's part of their response to the pandemic, and there's been a, there's a belief that that attitude may change, but that will be the key indicator of what drives future business failures. The other one was another piece of government support policies uh, during the pandemic that most people overlooked was the business finance guarantee scheme. So if you entered into any debt, well, the government's going to guarantee it. Mm. So that sort of takes any risk of default there. And the other reason that was highlighted is that there tends to be a big lag indicator between any major economic event. If you look at the GFC, it happened in about two in, 2008, companies started going broke in 2011, and they can look back at like the stock market crash in 1987. It was 1991 when company failures spiked. So it seems that we are some way away of actually seeing a wave of company failures. But one key thing to remember here is that 
The longer a company keeps on trading while kind of technically being unable to pay its debts tends to lead to worse outcomes for the creditors. Right. Which is kind of one of the reasons why is if the writing is on the wall, maybe it's time to call it quits earlier to maybe save the losses of the people who maybe work with you and not hopefully drag them down with so you. So is it a bit like they're just continuing to dig, tunnel their way dig, in? D- dig deep, you know. It's mm. uh, Look, there's been lots of questions raised about insolvency law in New Zealand about whether it needs to be streamlined. It's it sort of... It, almost incentivizes businesses to run uh, companies or people who run businesses to run them into the ground. Mm. And maybe that's not the best outcome if you know that it probably possibly isn't salvageable. Yeah. Nicholas, thank you very much. Also see uh, Nicholas here got a report. Fears of a large exodus adding to labour market pressures might have been overstated. Yeah. 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 You can wait. You can find out about that uh, later in the morning. Oh, I have to. All right. Okay. You're going to have to wait. Um, to the uh, business team, which is Nicholas here on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's go to Monday's money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is worth 63.14 US cents, 90.88 Australian cents, 59.79 Euro cents, 51.48 British pence, 4.21 yuan, 85.35 Japanese yen, 34.31 Russian rubles and 1.14 Aruban florins. Barry Guy. Morena Barry, how are you? It's a big weekend. <laughs> a lot of sport. We're trying to cram a lot of sport into your, into your brain there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there were, well, there, there was enough going on anyway to keep my brain, uh, my small brain, <laughs> uh, occupied, yes. Yeah, so so uh, I've just said uh, they've just gone off in the cricket. Uh, rain. So England are 149 for two and they need 147 runs to win. But I just noticed that they went off because of rain, so I've just had a look for the weather for Leeds. 90% chance of precipitation rain um, tomorrow, so it might be a saviour for the New Zealand cricketers, who again haven't scored enough runs, it appears, on that tour. So um, No, well, the only thing I see anyone's celebrating about is, all right, Daryl Mitchell, yeah! yeah. I mean, we're winning the the Daryl Mitchell part of the the test series, for sure. And Tom Blundell, uh, he top-scored for New Zealand with 80-something, I think. Well, he's, you know, again in the middle there, so those two have done particularly well, but uh, maybe that top five needs to score a few more, so... uh, Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you can tell me about, um, I was uh, at my daughter's 21st over the weekend, so I didn't see the league, but uh, New South Wales thumped Queensland uh, last night, 44-12, in the second State of Origin game, but um, how did uh, the Kiwis do on Saturday? Can I say, I'm finding Origin really hard to follow. Sometimes it's on Wednesdays, now it's on yeah. Sunday. The this only thing on you Perth, can count yeah. on is it's going to start way too late and it will start after that. I do miss the, the uh, soliloquy from Phil Gould um, trying to turn everything into Rudyard Kipling's if uh, before the game starts. But um, no, Kiwis Tonga was most fun with the, the houses either side of me, the one with all the red Tonga flags, yes. and uh, and then the one without. And there's lots of, hey, hey, 
going on, but pretty uh, monumentous. Uh, big win there by the Kiwis, but brilliant night out, I think, yeah. for everybody that went along. Uh, I know that our uh, our Matthew Tunison was having a great time in amongst all the Tongan fans in his home suburbs. So, uh, yeah, I know pretty cool. that uh, Tongans that went up from uh, from Wellington to watch mm. it and uh, made a family outing of it and. Uh, uh, I haven't heard from them since, but I'm pretty sure they m- must have had a had a great time. So yeah. um, uh, that was good to see. Um, uh, we have the uh, netball team being named today for the Commonwealth Games for the, wo- and, the women, the yes, women's team. And we've um, we've yes. been told that there's uh, might be a few surprises in there in the mid court. Uh, perhaps a couple of uh, names from the Pulse that were the championships side this year may be missing. Also in the sh- shooting circle as well. So that comes out at eleven. So uh, expect Nolene Toro to have um, perhaps um, stuck to her guns of the way she wants to see things uh, played um, as they uh, as they go to Birmingham next month. It is, yeah, well, so, yeah, because yeah. they've got that next month, but they've got that really neat um, Cadbury series coming up, which is where they yep. haven't they where they play yep. against the men yep. and Junior Levy's down the goal shooting end. For, I mean, I don't know how you're supposed to start that, but just thinking too, I believe there's a mixed team in it as well. I, I, I enjoy that they do the series; it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly, uh, and it works for them too. I, I don't know if other teams yeah. uh, around the world uh, do that, but um, uh, Dame Nolene obviously uh, thinks it works for them, and, and you know she hasn't uh, she hasn't done anything wrong really, uh, Dame Nolene, since she's taken over. So um, you know if this is the way she thinks, see how things need to be done, and the possibility of winning, then uh, um, great. All, all, you know, backing to her. So that's fantastic. Ryan Fox finished third uh, just this morning in Germany in the BMW International. Another, I think he's had like six top ten finishes in his last nine events on the uh, World European Tour. So he continues to do well, and he's building up to the uh, the Open Championship, which is in three weeks, I think it is. There was uh, the the NBA draft uh, happened uh, at the end of last week. So that's my team, Orlando. They got to choose first. How's this for a name? This is the guy we chose, Paolo Napoleon James Banquero, who is uh, his dad's Italian. Um, (laughs) There to do, but I just love that name. I think it's fantastic, Paolo Napoleon James Banquero. Just goes by Paulie, uh, Paolo Banquero. But he's he is uh, what went from being a uh, a university fellow to uh, a millionaire overnight, and he's a tiny little guy. He's six foot ten, just a little fellow, one hundred and thirteen kilos worth of 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 young man running around who's now incredibly rich. So well well done to him. And the Lakers didn't get one in the first round because they they. Yeah, they traded all these away. Uh, no, yeah, for but, all those big names. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. now uh, Shaquille O'Neal says he wants to buy the Orlando Magic. Thank you. Where he started out, so he'd need to buy it off the DeVos family. Oh, so he's it's, a very generous guy, Shaq. Yeah, he's uh, forever giving away, helping people, that sort of thing. So good on him. <laughs> good one. He can help that team as well. Cheers. Thanks very okay. much. Thanks Cheers. very much, Barry. The professionals of RNZ of the Morning Report team, they're up after six. It's uh, Susie Ferguson is here with us now to have a look at it. Kia ora, Susie, how are you? Morena, I'm well, how are you? I'm good, I hope you're rested after your long weekend, hopefully. Oh, love a long weekend. Love it. What's yeah. happening on the show today? Well, we're going to be talking about the Prime Minister off to Europe to try to get a trade deal over the line, amongst other things. Uh, also, some uh, changes around this second COVID booster. Anyone aged over 50... Uh, also, uh, some aged care and disability workers 
uh, going to be able to get this fourth shot of the COVID vaccine. And speaking of uh, getting shots of vaccines, all children are going to be eligible for a free flu vaccine from this Friday as well. Also, we're going to be taking a look at a situation in Nelson where a man is refusing to end his conversion therapy service. Mm even though that practice was banned back in February. Also talking Roe v. Wade on Morning Report, and it's all coming up after six. Beautiful. Thank you uh, very much, Susie. Susie Ferguson there with uh, all that is happening up after six. Well, we'll we'll do that too. Let's go to the United States now, where some states have already made it illegal for a woman to get an abortion, with clinics forced to close their doors and women needing treatment uh, to cross state lines to get it. There have been massive protests across the country after the US Supreme Court overturned the Roe v. Wade decision over the weekend, meaning it's now up to individual states rather than the federal government to decide whether it's a crime for women and non-binary people to get an abortion. Joining me now from Washington, D.C., is Simon Marks. Kia ora, Simon. How is it? Can you explain to us, how is it that some states have already made it illegal? Ah, oh, well, yes, indeed, Nathan. Good morning to you. I, I mean, they've made it illegal because they were ready to act. In some states, they'd even uh, passed laws that were simply waiting to be signed onto the books, these kind of so-called snapback laws that were literally laws in waiting, uh, presuming that the Supreme Court was eventually uh, going to strike down Roe versus Wade. And, of course, we all got a very clear sense that this was coming uh, last month with that leaked draft of opinion that looked very much like the actual opinion that clattered onto the Supreme Court's website on Friday morning here. So uh, you're seeing moves, I think, so far by three states now uh, to outlaw abortion completely, with several others uh, planning similar moves. And uh, in uh, across a large uh, swathe of the country, uh, even in places where the procedure won't be outlawed completely, it will be so heavily restricted uh, as if in, in practical terms uh, to head off any possibility that abortions will actually be actually be conducted in that state. So we're heading rapidly at a pace of knots now for two Americas. The America where abortion continues to be available, although under some degree of restriction uh, in states largely but not uniquely to the north and then uh, states where abortion is outlawed or very very heavily restricted in states mostly but not uniquely to the South. And, uh, you know, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked uh, on Saturday if the White House is concerned that this is going to lead to a great migration of people choosing to relocate. Some people fleeing the South because they want to live in the more permissive North, and some people fleeing the North because they want to move to a state where their personal anti-abortion views are honoured by a state legislature. And she said the nightmare scenario is upon the United States and that this notion of two separate Americas being created in front of our eyes is no longer a hypothetical question. It's interesting that this decision happened and it's about some of the language that that people use. The, oh, it's already the law, uh, and that was, um, you know, the the appointees. Tell us about this. Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominees, because there's reports now they might have misled several senators. 
Yes, well, there are some senators who say they are deeply disappointed in what uh, those nominees told them when privately they questioned them about their views on uh, Roe versus Wade. They include uh, Senator Susan Collins, a Republican of Maine, uh, who uh, insists that she was assured by Justice Brett Kavanaugh that Roe versus Wade was going to be safe in his hands. We don't know if she glanced behind his back to see if it has had his fingers crossed while he was making uh, that assurance to her. But this is one reason why left-wing Democrats, including uh, the New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are saying that President Biden now needs to take action immediately to expand the Supreme Court and dilute the influence of some of those conservative justices. Take a listen to what she said on one of the Sunday talk shows today. The Supreme Court has dramatically overreached its authority. Several Supreme Court justices misled them in their, during their confirmation hearings and in the lead up to their confirmation. This is a crisis of legitimacy and President Biden must address that. But the White House has made it apparent that President Biden is not going to address that. They have explicitly ruled out uh, over the weekend the idea of expanding the court, putting three more Democrats on it to try and overcome this Republican appointed majority. And so one has to conclude that this Supreme Court is going to drag America to the right for decades to come. On on other issues too, uh, such oh, as absolutely. marriage equality they've hinted at? Oh, absolutely. Justice Clarence Thomas, who was put on the court by President George H.W. Bush at the end of 1991, wrote a concurrent opinion that sits alongside the majority Republican opinion, saying, OK, now we've done abortion, let's move on. We've got to look at uh, the legal right to contraception, the legal right to gay sex and the legal right to same-sex marriage. So he's absolutely indicating uh, what kind of Christian theocracy uh, he would like to see introduced uh, if he gets his way. Yeah. Um, Just very briefly, Joe Biden's response? Uh, Well, Joe Biden is campaigning on the issue. I mean, obviously condemning it, calling for peaceful protests in the weeks and months ahead, but insisting that Roe versus Wade is going to be on the ballot in this November's congressional elections. Uh, A fresh evidence that he wants to drive voters to the polls for beleaguered Democrat candidates all over the country off the back of this ruling. But there are some pretty angry Democrats out there who are saying that this White House and its predecessors, its Democratic predecessors should have done a lot more to defend abortion rights a lot earlier. And some of them are not immediately inclined uh, to respond to fundraising requests from the party. Yeah. Simon Marks, thank you very much for your time. Uh, That is uh, Simon Marks who joins us out of the USA. It's coming up to 10 to 6. On Friday, District Health Boards is going to disappear. Health NZ and the Māori Health Authority will take over. To, to, To get to this point, some areas have taken part in a pilot scheme, which is going to figure out how it will all work. This includes Wairau and Hawke's Bay. Wairau's population is around 70% Māori and is hoping to greatly benefit from the reforms. Our reporter Tom Kitchen spoke with Lewis Ratapu, who's from Tihei Takitemu Partnership Board, which was established to help guide the Māori Health Authority across Te Mato o Maui, which is Hawke's Bay. Actually, average wage is not great. Um, and why that's a problem here in Wairau is because our cost of living is so high. You know, we've got one supermarket, you know, cabbage cost eight dollars. I saw the other week for a cabbage. One cabbage. One cabbage, eight dollars. Um, because we've so far from major centres, our bank, last bank left 
last year. Westpac closed down, so we've got no major banks. We've got a kiosk at the local um, at the local Hammer Hardware, where West, you know, for the post office and a bit of Kiwi Bank. But otherwise, we've got a lot of services that that leave the town. <clears throat> so we've got a, there's a high cost of living that you wouldn't see in other uh, major centres, compounded by the fact that we um, pay low wages here as well. You know, pastoral farming is still a major industry here. The freezing works at AFCO is the major employer in the district. So, yeah, so, you know, the economic situation um, is something that we're trying to address. And that, that then underpins stuff like access to healthcare. You know, because if you can't afford to go and see a doctor, and although we, we pay a low fee for access, you know, $10 is still a lot of money and then you've got your five dollar script on top of that with other five dollars so making ends meet is a huge problem not just for health but in other parts of it. So even if it's subsidized to ten dollars and then you pay five bucks extra for your for your subsidized script that's still a real issue for people, is that what you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's an issue for for people in major centres too. I mean I remember I was um, interviewing um, a grandmother who had three kids coming through the emergency department in Hastings, right? And um, she were looking after her moko, uh, her two mokos, and that's because her parents, you know, the parents um, couldn't look after them anymore through other issues they were having. So, um, so she was using the emergency department to take her grandchild who had a disability in there to get seen. So when I asked her, she was part of a low-cost practice, only paid $10 uh, to see a doctor, and then $5 for a script. But that was the bread and milk for the, for the week, right? So she would rather go and sit in the ED and wait with her mokko to get seen, rather than pay $15, because that would be bread and milk for the week. So people in, in decision-making seats, you know, if I said to you, um, can you pick up a, a bread and a milk? You know, the first thing you probably think about is, oh, do I have time on the way home to, to stop in and pick it up? You know, we don't usually sit down, or people in these decision-making seats don't really think about, oh, what am I going to do for the rest of the week, right? So we're out of touch with the reality of what it means for people, you know. And, and I think people who sit in these positions need to understand the stories of these people you know, who are, who are being challenged because, you know, that, that's, um, so that's sort of some of the stuff that we don't think about because most of us will say, well, $10, that's really cheap because I know I pay $40 to see my GP. And that was Lewis Ratapu from Wairoa speaking to our Hawke's Bay reporter Tom Kitchen on the health reforms. Last week we spoke with a South Auckland GP from one of the 27 clinics offering free weekend consultations in order to relieve pressure on Middlemore Hospital's overloaded emergency department. In return, the county's Monaco DHP is paying, is paying practices $250 per patient they see on a Friday evening and weekend days and $350 per patient on a weekend evening. The temporary scheme is aimed at helping Middlemore's emergency department as it grapples with an influx of patients uh, due to the winter flu but also COVID patients 
as well. The Wellington and Southern District Health Boards, which are facing similar pressures, have introduced similar measures. So joining me once again uh, to tell us how the second weekend has gone, and it's a uh, good morning to Dr Carl Coe from Papatoitoi Family Doctors, which is part of the Health Hub in Papatoitoi. Kia ora, kia ora, Dr Carl, how did it go? Marina, um, oh yeah, yeah, we are... Uh, it was interesting, actually. Um, I must uh, correct some of your figures. They've all oh, been changed this week. There's already have, been right. changes, and they've, <laughs> they've made some changes and reduced um, the daytime um, during the day figure and alter it to different hours. Okay. Um, as normal, they're starting to bring in more things like can't do um, virtual, which is a bit interesting because um, or telehealth, so you have to be face to face. Mm-hmm. Um, what was most interesting is many people who came in, um, we saw some casuals as well as our own patients. We spread the weekend um, with the five doctors. We have full-time equivalent and the three nurses um, as much as we could, but we just couldn't do Sunday. It's, it's just too hard with people's families in short notice and uh, having to work all week. Um, yeah. Looking at my list today, full list starting at 8 o'clock, 8.30 till 6. Um, we just couldn't carry on all week and weekend and then do another week. Um, so we managed to do uh, all Friday and Saturday. Um, and what was most interesting is it was a real mixture of people with um, probably influenza. A lot of people who are COVID rat negative in the red stream who are really quite sick. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of influenza out there and um, people who look well but are fairly sick, got a high pulse and are trying to cope with life and uh, another virus going around. Um, and quite a few people, over half, did not know about the scheme. They'd found us through Healthline, um, got um, ways to get to us, and were expecting to pay. And uh, it was quite a nice surprise for them. I sort of mentioned to them, now this has all been paid for this weekend as a special deal. They all thought it was Matariki special deal. All right. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so it was, it was surprising to see that um, quite a few people hadn't realised it was on. So, you know, your, your practice, will you be able to keep up with the extra patients? Or if you can, how long do you think you might be able to? Well, I think, as you mentioned, I heard 27 as well. Um, mm. We certainly can't carry on being 24, well, 24 hours, so I say, 16 hours open like they wanted us to in the weekends, plus have a full work week. We're really full just doing the Monday to Friday, plus we do Saturday mornings. Um, staff is so short and demand's going up. And the, um, I got a bit of trouble talking to you last week. Um, I, I mentioned 60 hours a week. My wife got very angry. So that's a very optimistic hours. <laughs> More, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you count the um, the administration in the evenings, plus we often, and a lot of GPs will spend their Sundays doing at least some hours of administration, catching up for those urgent referrals um, you hadn't managed to do during the week. Um, and Sunday evening, uh, yesterday was spent um, getting ready for this week as well. So um, without uh, smarter ways of organising ourselves, um, we not all practices could do this and would have to somehow magic up some more workforce or work on ways that we could um, prioritise and have to, I say, hate the word, never had to do this in primary care before, never thought we would, but um, waitlist somehow um, people to uh, manage the demand. Yeah, well, I mean, Dr. Cole, you, you and your uh, fellow doctors are doing amazing work uh, for everybody there and appreciate very much the fact you guys are burning um, 
burning the, 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 the candle at both ends uh, for this. Thank you very much for your time uh, again this morning. So Dr Carl Cole there of Papatoitoi Family Doctors, they're part of the Health Hub uh, in Papatoitoi. And uh, yeah, interesting, apparently one of the patients, 91 years old, wasn't aware it was uh, a free visit there over the weekend and delighted. And of course too, I mean this, this is all supply and demand, right? Uh, yes, the flu always slams hospitals too, but normally there wouldn't be that many COVID patients around. So please uh, have a thought about that if you're not masking up when you're out uh, in public. Um, here's some thoughts. Um, oh, Kate joins us. She says, uh, I spent Matariki Friday hiking. Oh, nice. On the Queen Charlotte track with a Kereru soundtrack. Brilliant. Um, Shona says that her nana made the best rhubarb and apple pie. Still loves rhubarb on cereal with a bit of yogurt there too. And uh, rhubarb and strawberries divine. Nathan says Robin and, and Paraparam. Phil says he listened to Kate Bush records all weekend. And uh, Shona, uh, no, no, who are we? Oh, here's an anonymous one. Apparently, the, the potato that we were trying to pronounce before with the Minister of Fruit and Veg is Dauphinois. There you are. Dauphinois Pomme de Terre's. Is that what I say? I think that's what I say. And apparently he's a big fan of the sugar. On the brew pub, Morning Reporters next with Susie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor.